Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Good for a Weekend, the podcast for Swifties, Sue Ticketmaster. I'm your co-host, Chrissy Cornis, and this is a very special and momentous episode. I interviewed the two attorneys, Jennifer Ann Kinder and Griffin McMillan, who are representing Swifties versus Ticketmaster. As you'll hear, they're both fans of our girl Taylor, and they want Ticketmaster to give us an answer of what actually happened during the Eras Tour sale. Because really, like, like what happened? I, I, what happened? It was absolutely fascinating talking about this from a legal perspective with them, and I hope you'll like it too. Just a side note, Griffin joined us later in the interview, so you won't hear his voice in the beginning. If you listen to this and you want to learn more or perhaps join the lawsuit as a plaintiff, I'll have their information in our show notes. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Good for a Weekend. We are so excited to have you on and hear about this lawsuit. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So can we just start with what the basis of this lawsuit is? Oh gosh. So it's a, it's a antitrust lawsuit, which sounds a little overwhelming and kind of hard to swallow and sort of boring, but actually it's really not when you get into the meat of it because antitrust, it's really consumers fighting against a system. And in this case, it's against Ticketmaster. Um, so the cause of action is there, there are over 300 Swifties who have filed an individual, they're filed as individual plaintiffs against Ticketmaster for antitrust fraud and misrepresentation. We're in the process right now of adding negligence, which is another sort of weird term, but the basis of a negligence cause of action is that they breached a duty and that there are damages as a result, so that it caused some harm because of their own negligence. Mm -hmm. So how do you calculate the damages of a lawsuit like this? Well, you know, because we're requesting that a judge and a jury make this determination, it really is, and and to some extent, left up to a judge and a jury. What we know that the plaintiffs are entitled to, if they're found, in fact, in breach of antitrust, then they're entitled to the difference that they should have paid in a ticket with what they actually had to pay. And I'm sure you've seen I mean, these exorbitant prices that uh, are being exploited by people who just love Taylor Swift, right? And just want to be at a concert and sing her songs and post COVID. And so they're, they're automatically entitled to that. And they call it trebling and legalese. But that basically just means times three. So they're entitled to that. And then if they are found in like willful violation, it could be up to times nine. Um, and then fraud and misrepresentation really are left to a judge and a jury to decide, you know, they get to calculate the sort of individual experiences and the kind of, you know, the damages that they went through. If they had to take off work all day and lost wages, if it's, you know, there's some emotional components to it, too, because so much of what we do when we're buying tickets for our kids is, to connect with our kids, right? And, you know, we have some clients that have handicapped children and that is their only way of communicating. It's So we've got all, it really sort of spans the realm of different experiences, but you have all of these relationships that were impacted um, by really Ticketmaster's intentional acts. There's just really no other way to call it, but an intentional, purposeful 
you know, violation of the trust that we and as consumers have and how we're going to be treated in a ticket sale, especially after, you know, being verified and going through all the hoops and processes. And buying merch. Oh, you know, right. To get boosted yeah. and previous concert sales. You know, I, I was... I was a reputation concert goer. I had tickets to Loverfest, you know, so I thought that I was going to meet all of the requirements and elements to be a verified fan and somehow find my way in line. And I don't think that they ever actually verified anything. I don't think so. I think that's what we're going to find. Yeah. I wanted to know how you became a Swifty. How did you become a fan? To a large extent, I, I've certainly loved her music and listened to her music uh, before I had a child, but um, after I had a child, you know, that experience was just enhanced. But by as a young, young girl, my daughter loved Taylor Swift. And it's something that we enjoy together. And it's a way for us to communicate um, and to, you know, experience something together. Her message is so female empowering and messages of acceptance and loving who you are any way that you are and loving everyone else the same way. It's just what well, it's always been so much fun to see 12 year old girls singing at the top of their lungs, right? Knowing that they're empowering each other as 12 year olds and as young adults. So we've been Taylor Swift fans ever since she was a baby. And how did the lawsuit come about? Did you decide right away when this was happening, like, I have to do something about this? My firm needs to get into this? I, it didn't take long to realize that I needed, that I wanted to do something. So mm-hmm. my experience was really unpleasant. I was waitlisted. Um, I, and I never got tickets. I was in the Capital One sale. I never even made it through the queue before the sale ended. So I was one of those folks that never had a chance to even buy a ticket. And watching the TikToks and watching the social media that was occurring and uh, the other experiences from Swifties, you know, it was really heartbreaking. And it was... And so my first my first TikTok or my first sort of social media response was one of voting, you know, do Swifties, because really, if you look at us as a group, we have a load of a lot of voting power, in my opinion. You know, uh, you have senators that come up for election every two years and, you know, the constituency of Swifties, you could single handedly get rid of a U.S. senator, vote out a U.S. senator who didn't believe in antitrust legislation, right? Mm-hmm. So my first thought was this is a voting magnet. This is a voting populace that really should use our voice um, in the booth, in the voting booth. And we should make it really be very, very clear about what our expectations are about how consumers and fans are treated. And as that evolved, that thought evolved, you know, I began to ask myself, well, why wouldn't you just file a lawsuit? Um, why wouldn't why wouldn't you see if there's a way that we could join voices in an action against Ticketmaster? And so that's that began the evolution of the idea that we should band together as a group, a collective unit that cares about consumers. It cares about our own kids, what going to live entertainment is going to be like for our children as adults, you know, remembering what it was like for us when we were younger and how easy it was to go to like a virgin tour, the first Madonna. So thinking back on my own experience, what I wanted uh, the world to look like for my daughter, I, I began to toy with the idea. Griffin and I started talking about you know, could we really do this? What were the risks involved? Was there a cause of action that we thought we could be successful on? Because we knew that we had, we knew we had a unified collective group. We knew that existed. We knew that it was an easy to motivate and organize and stay motivated group. The question would be whether or not we thought we could be successful. So that's when we really started toying with the idea and then at some point, 
you know, we both look at each other and, and we say to each other, what are we waiting on? What, what do we have to lose? There's nothing to lose because nothing is going to change. This was a, you know, a debacle is sort of an understatement. I, that hundreds of thousands, millions of people were poorly treated and ripped off. And uh, so what did we have to lose at that point? And so we just decided we were going to do it. And, and we decided collectively, I think it's important that they all stay individual. And this is not some sort of mass class action. Mm-hmm. My personal opinion on class actions is that the attorneys are the only people that really make money. You know, if you get your ticket repaid for and you get a voucher, I'm not sure what we've really accomplished. I mean, we we successfully gotten a ticket paid back, right? But have we effectuated any sort of change? Are they any more worried about the consumer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, about the plaintiffs. Like, I saw that there's a list in your initial filing. Are there more now? How did you find them? Once we made our original TikTok, uh, the the phones started ringing and the emails and the comments, and it didn't take us long to collect and to organize a group of over 300. We are still taking plaintiffs at this point. If there's anybody that's interested, at some point we'll have to to cut it off because we're filing an amended petition, like I talked about earlier, that's going to include negligence. And we need to make sure we do a really good job on the plaintiffs that we have, especially because we're keeping them individualized. So each individual plaintiff proceeds with their own cause of action and their own damages. So they stand alone. You know, their voice is their own. They decide when's enough. They decide what's enough. They decide when to settle, when to push on. And so we thought it was important that they remain individual because, you know, if we don't make Ticketmaster listen to each individual story and and they and they can look at a plaintiff as plaintiff one, two, or plaintiff 300, then we're not going to accomplish anything. We're not going to effectuate any change. But if they have to listen to each individual plaintiff's story, and if there's a, if there's a forum, a judge or a jury to hear that, well, that to Griffin and I seemed to be the best way that we could actually change something. I also noticed, and I'm sorry if this is a dumb question, I saw that this was filed in L.A. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, Griffin, do you want to explain the reason that we needed to file in L.A.? Uh, well, we wanted to file in L.A. for a number of reasons. First off, that's actually where Ticketmaster is headquarters. So we would actually, at the time, be able to file in state court. And that would allow us to be filing under California's antitrust laws, which are a lot more robust and closer to that in, like, in Europe, where they actually have really robust antitrust laws like in Europe right now Ticketmaster can't get away and Live Nation can't get with this away with the same behavior they've had to uh, adjust how they've done business in fact we've talked with a lot of our clients as we've gone forward and some of them have found that it's actually cheaper to pay for a flight to go to Europe to see the concert than see it in their own home city which is awful but being able to file in California was uh, more ideal because it just they have more of a fair regime Texas doesn't really have a very robust antitrust law, and I want to stay out of federal court. I feel, and Jen and I both feel this way, that state court judges tend to be more responsive to the public and more and more than anything for this case, we do want to be in front of a judge and a jury and not have this mm-hmm. case hidden away in arbitration. That makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering what the difference between federal and state would be, but that makes a lot of sense. Federal judges can be lifetime appointments and... So aren't necessarily elected. So, you know, so on the state level, you tend to find judges that are elected, that are more, that, like Griffin said, that are more responsive to, to the public and to the cries, the outcries of the public. And in this case, we didn't file in federal court. That Griffin was about to explain that they, um, it's a procedural issue that favors defendants. They would rather be in a federal court with a judge that's appointed for life. And so they they remove the case. I don't know, Griffin, if you wanted to talk any 
more about the removal or what you were going to say? I was just going to say they had filed what's called removal. It's an automatic process where a defendant can have the case moved to federal court. We have a challenge to it and we're arguing, going to argue against it. But the way removal works is it's automatic. So you have to argue to go back to state court. So right now they've argued that we un, they moved us under the Class Action Fairness Act, even though we haven't filed under class action solely because of the large number of plaintiffs. And again, we're going to be arguing to go back to state court. I think gotcha. the easiest way, I mean, it's just a, a bunch of procedural phony baloney, you know, and it's what we do as lawyers, right? It's posturing and trying to best position yourself to try to get the most favorable result, either by a ruling or some sort of mechanism. And so the unfortunate thing is that in removal to federal court, you don't have to ask for permission to remove. You can just do it, and then you have to ask for permission to go back and get a ruling from the judge to go back to state court, which is what we intend to do. You know, none of this, we knew going in that this was going to be a lot of work and was not going to be easy. And true to form, they Ticketmaster does what Ticketmaster does, which is try to position themselves and posture themselves in sort of the best position for them, not caring at all. If anybody thinks that Ticketmaster cares about the consumer, well, this is a great example because they've not reached out to any of the plaintiffs. They've not tried to make anything right. What they have done is they've tried to get themselves out of the case, and that's what they will continue to do. It, what, this is not about change for them or, you know, even trying to make things right. The Senate, at the Senate uh, Judiciary Subcommittee hearing, you know, he apologized and he said he apologized to all Taylor Swift fans. But all that was, I mean, what would you call that, Griffin? Not not honesty. Yeah, I mean, there's just not any integrity to it because nobody, if somebody really cared about the consumers, they would do something to help what occurred, Right. To make sure it didn't happen. Yeah. And we know that it happened in Beyonce after this sale. We know that it's happening in every single, single, look at the cure, look at sugar, look at, you know, NCT, every sale that's happened. It's just more of the same. So Ticketmaster hasn't released any sort of statement or reaction to this? They have. They had an initial reaction, which was, um, it was too many Taylor Swift fans. Oh, you Swifties. You know, y'all are the problem. It's you, right? That's what they said first. 14 million ticket uh, Taylor Swift fans flooded the system. But when they were called to testify in front of the Judiciary Committee and the, it's the antitrust subcommittee, what they said then is that it was a bot attack. So they changed their story from initially blaming Taylor Swift fans, 14 million Taylor Swift fans flooded the system, which is what the CEO you know, stated in the days after the Taylor Swift sale, heiress to her sale. But in the Senate, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, they said it was a bot attack. That's completely different. That's a hundred percent different. Especially when the prior is blaming a group of women, mostly women. Right. Now, please do that. Right. I mean, yeah. what, what did we do? What did yeah. we do? So we there were three points. <laughs> We 3.5 of us tried, you know, requested to become verified fans, right? 1.5 million codes were given out. What what Swifties do is they follow the rules. We did exactly what Ticketmaster told us to do. They sent us an email and told us to become a verified fan, which is exactly what we did. Then they tell us, well, you'll get your code if you're chosen, you will get your code. You know, we need to know about your merchandise sale, about your previous ticket history. You know, make sure it lines up with your Ticketmaster account. And if you're, you know, chosen, then you're going to get a code. And then they tell us this is when you need to log in. You use a computer, not a phone. Don't back, you know, don't go backwards. Don't refresh. Just stay where you are in the queue. And that's what Swifties did. We followed every single rule and recommendation that they gave us. It was not an outside 14 million independent Swifty fans that just, you know, swooped in to buy tickets and not follow the rules. It's just a lie. What they do is they allow bots and scalpers in, and that's who purchased those tickets. 
and most of us as Taylor Swift fans, once we got through the queue line, we were already purchasing resold tickets. They were already on the resale market. And that's why they were so high. It didn't have anything to do with Taylor Swift. It didn't have anything to do with uh, dynamic pricing. Taylor Swift negotiated $49 tickets or $449 tickets, right? But nobody could buy a ticket for that price on the day of the sale. They were $1,200, $2,500 because they were already on the resale market because Ticketmaster allows bots and scalpers in. And that's without the crazy fees too. That's without the crazy fees. You know, we have one client that tried 41 times to check out, right? And she spent $14,000 trying to check out and never was able to get tickets. That's wild. Isn't it? We have clients that had, after they purchased their overpriced ticket, had tickets removed from their account by Ticketmaster. Just removed just gone, gone and resold. We have disabled clients that were never able to buy uh, accessible seats. Those seats were purchased by people that aren't, you know, ADA compliant. Only then they had their tickets taken back from them. So you have a Taylor Swift fan that didn't know they were buying, you know, disability accessible seats that later have those tickets taken away. And then you have the disabled individual who's never able to actually purchase a ticket. We have one um, client in New Jersey that tried six different states to try to buy tickets for her and her disabled child. And she could never find a ticket that was below $2,000. Six different states. That's absolutely unfair and it's criminal, right? Yeah. It's disgusting. It's abhorrent. And, and like they need to be punished in, in the most aggressive manner that's possible under civil law. I'm curious, since you went to the reputation tour, do you have any thoughts on why that went so much more smoothly? Because I also went to the reputation tour. I watched all the videos. I got like the points or whatever. And I felt like that was really fair and it worked. So I'm wondering why this was such a disaster. Which is so interesting, right? Because it was set up in much the same way. A verified fan, you needed to receive a code, you waited in line, but then all of a sudden tickets were available. They were at the prices that were negotiated and you could pretty seamlessly check out. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm if I'm telling what I if I were going to say what I, I really feel, I, I, I believe that Ticketmaster capitalized on an opportunity that they had. They realized that the sale was so popular post COVID that people were dying to see her and the four albums that had had been released since COVID. And they knew that they they knew what they were doing and, and they set it up that it would be the most difficult, that a verified fan would be the most difficult fan to, to obtain a ticket. And I think it's because they believe and they know that a Taylor Swift fan would pay whatever they needed to pay to get in. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that, that's what I really think. I think the people they were worried less about were the verified fans because they knew that they would pay, they would, whatever it took Mm -hmm. to get to the concert, that's what they would pay. And I think that they really capitalize on the fear um, of not being able to get through the line, not being able to check out. And, and it was very tempting. I mean, I was even tempted to go immediately to the secondary market because how do you, you know, how do you come back when you've been to concert after concert, how do you come back without tickets? Right? Like, so I think a lot were were really fear-based purchasing and willing to spend those exorbitant first day prices, right? Because they wanted tickets so badly, which kind of, I think, feeds into the whole fraud and misrepresentation. Because based on our past experience, didn't you, I, I had the belief that I would have a fair chance to get a ticket. That's what I thought. 
I thought I've purchased some merchandise. I've been to two. I didn't get to go in to Loverfest because of COVID, right? She was looking out for me, which I think she absolutely was. She Mm -hmm. was trying to negotiate us to move through the line and to have a decent chance at a ticket. But we never really had a fair shot. We, we never. And what's so embarrassing is right before the sale, our podcast had an episode on how to buy tickets for the Ares tour because my co-host and I, we've been to several tours and we were like, guys, you're going to freak out, but it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. She always advocates for us. Everyone's going to get a ticket who wants one. And we were so embarrassed just weeks later that that was not the case at all. Well, your embarrassment, you know, is a result of Ticketmaster. It has nothing to do with you or Taylor Swift or the past experiences. I can understand how horrifying that would be, right, as the host of a podcast, because you have good, solid information to communicate to your listeners on how to get through this process, right? Mm -hmm. Solid information that works in virtually every previous sale. And then you've got Ticketmaster who now, I mean, what we also believe is that they didn't, they really didn't purchase the software to, to process the tickets. They didn't purchase the right size or whatever to process the tickets. All of this being intentional. What they did was very much, I believe, intentional. And I think that we're going to be able to prove it at the end of the day with the forensic data. But, mm-hmm. you know, how horrifying for you, Right. With with podcasters, you know, knowing that this is how you could get tickets and you never really had a shot at getting yeah. tickets. And it's just so disappointing. We have several listeners who weren't intending to buy VIP tickets, you know, and at the very end, they were so afraid, like you said, and then they ended up buying VIP tickets, even though they didn't want to spend that much money because they were worried they weren't sure. going to get anything else. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, that's the ticket that the scalper and the bot doesn't want because it is the harder ticket to sell, right? The mm-hmm. $4.99 ticket and the $49, I mean, the $49 tickets were gone before you could even blink your eyes, right? Because that is the like a scalper's dream to resell that for $250 or $450. That, that, is, the, that is the best market for them, right? And the $8.99s were the ones that they left alone because those were the harder ones them to sell. And you know, another thing that we've learned um, from this experience is that the VIP is not transferable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, until you got your packet in the mail, if you resold that ticket, then the VIP piece of it never got mailed out. So they didn't want those tickets either because they wouldn't be able to sell those because the VIP experience would be lost because it wouldn't be mailed out to the person that had the ticket. So they didn't want to get caught with that too, which also makes you think, because if you think about it, if it's a Taylor Swift fan who bought a ticket at $8.99 and then they wanted to resell that ticket because of a conflict with their schedule, they would hold on to that ticket, get the VIP package, and then just send it to the other Swifty, right? Mm -hmm. But a bot or a scalper is not going to do that. So I think that's why they let those tickets alone. And, you know, Ticketmaster in their mind are like, well, you know, a Swifty won't pay their rent. That's what they'll do. They'll just not make their car payment for a month because, and do we really care? No, as long as they pay that increased fee, you know, and we get the $300 in fees, it's all good for us. So what do you think the timeline for a case like this would be? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, You know, we've got some scheduling deadlines already in place. So our arbitration, where our our really contested, what we believe hearing is going to be, is whether or not they are successful in moving us to arbitration, which is where we don't want to be. Not because we're not entitled to recovery or we won't, uh, you know, we're not going to win or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's under... It's not, it, the sunlight is, does not shine as bright, right? You know, it's not an open forum where uh, the public has access to, to watch and to report and to, you know. Um, but that hearing, we have calendared to probably occur within three months. 
So there's briefing that has to be done on each side, and then the other side's allowed to respond to the other person's briefing. So Griffin, do you agree with me in about three months is when we probably would have our next hearing on whether or not we're moved to arbitration? Yeah, I think that'll probably be right. It might be four, but yeah, I think three to four months is probably going to be pretty accurate. So, you know, in terms of a timeline, I think probably about about a year. You know, the 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 critical piece is the forensic data, right? That's the most important piece. Not so much um, depositions or discovery, but making and requiring Ticketmaster to show us their native data in every form which we've requested, that's probably going to take several hearings because it appears that they're not willingly going to produce a document, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be made and told, forced by a judge via an order that they have to produce it. So it really comes down to how many hearings is it going to take for a judge to order this you know, what's the timeline on production of all of it? Because for you, for me, I think that we're entitled to know what Ticketmaster did to us Mm -hmm. on that day, how we were directed, who was let in, who was kept out, how, as a verified fan, how we as verified fans were were sent, where we were sent, how we got through, were we barriers created so that other people got in before us? Was a, was a phone more accessible than a computer? Did Ticketmaster know? Do bots know to use a, a, a phone and not a computer? How many people were attacking the system? What kind of software was in place? to detect these IP addresses, what was done to counterbalance, you know, to counter those attacks. A verified fan with one IP address is really easy to find. It's really easy to find where we were and what we did, right? But what we want to know is not just what we did, but what everyone else was doing at the same time. Who else were in the rooms in the queue with us? Who got in faster? Who got in last? Why in the world were these ticket prices changing? There's no reason it was dynamic pricing was not in place. It was not negotiated by Taylor Swift. And so so was vertical pricing in place because they were already being resold? So there's so much data that we need and we need our experts to review the data and tell us what exactly, because I think that you're entitled to it because you have a responsibility to your podcast listeners, right? I mean, you certainly want to give them an information about why their experience was so bad, right? We want to do the same thing. We want to be able to tell our clients you know, this is all that you did to be a verified fan. And this is what they did to you once you were in, you know, because we have hundreds of clients that were kicked out. Their code didn't work. Uh, The error kept popping up that said, oh, sorry, this is our problem, not yours. Start over again. So you went back to the beginning of the queue line. Like all of these problems, these faults and refreshes and kicking them out of the queue line and starting back over, you know, we're entitled to all of those answers because there's a reason that that was happening. Mm -hmm. And I suspect it is orchestrated by Ticketmaster. I mean, why would they not know that there are a lot of Taylor Swift fans and there's a lot of interest? Do you think that's what their defense is going to be, that there was just too many Taylor Swift fans? Will they fall back on their initial it's Swifty's fault? You know, I think that they're probably going to stay away from that argument. One, because it, it certainly doesn't benefit them because Swifties, Swifty fans, man, you don't want to piss off a Swifty. And you don't want the backlash that you're going to get. I mean, the funniest thing right now is the TikTok that's going around about the ad that Ticketmaster has for a social media director, okay? 
the gaslighting that Swifties are giving on TikTok for that ad at, for a social media director, which requires in their description of attributes, it's bravery, mm-hmm, resilience, and ability to think fast on your feet, right? And the gaslighting that's going on because of the audacity that they have, really, right? Um so I don't know that they're going to, it's certainly, I don't think that the forensics is going to back that. I think that's probably why their argument changed in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, because they are sworn into, they're sworn to tell the truth. They take an oath as they're about to testify. I believe they probably know that's not the truth. Uh, Griffin, do you think that that's probably why the argument changed at the time where the rubber met the road in the hearing? I think that's exactly it. I think the, um, you know, and I think I though I expect them to change it again mm-hmm. down the line. If we get more out of them, then suddenly the story will change around. And then I, if they even offer an explanation, they'll be like, well, we didn't really know. That was our best guess at the mm-hmm. time. Some just some just some gaslighting crap they'll mm-hmm. come up with. You know, because one of the problems that uh, recently that Griffin and I kind of struggle with is this concept that Ticketmaster has and has approved of being a verified reseller. So I, I struggle with their argument that verified resellers are somehow okay with them, supported by them and promoted, like given, there's clearly benefits given to being a Ticketmaster verified reseller, either by getting the number of tickets you can purchase, you can skip the line and get in front. Like there's gotta be some benefit Mm -hmm. to being a verified reseller, right? Well, isn't that a bot and a scalper? I mean, like Griffin, is there a difference between the two? Um, I think it's the difference. Well, it's, an, it's essentially a mass of bots, and it is it is just to their advantage. They don't want your average low like low tech random scalper that you might try and steal who might scalp a couple toys or something before Christmas. This is like these are like operations, right? And Ticketmaster gets to double dip on their tickets and help keep their prices up, which helps their venues. And the scalpers get to essentially make money for nothing. And they all get to essentially make a bunch of money off the backs of, you know, the ordinary people just trying to buy tickets. When you go back in for the resale market and you're reselling your tickets on Ticketmaster, you know, they get to tell you what you get to sell your ticket at. Part of the reason that I'm sure you've seen all the Swifty sites that have popped up in an effort to make an authentic, transparent, honest resale, right? Uh, of, a, of a legitimately bought Taylor Swift ticket. Um, the reason that they that's become a necessity is because you can't go on to Ticketmaster and resell the ticket for what you bought it. They won't let you do that. The vertical pricing kicks in and they tell you what that, but so bots and scalpers you know, Ticketmaster's benefited by them reselling because they, of course, have no problem with Ticketmaster telling them. I'm sure that's part of the contract that they have with the verified. So how you sit in a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing and you say, oh, it's all the bots' bots fault. It's all the scalpers' fault. That's all their fault. But then you have a verified resale program mm-hmm. uh, in in w- within your company well, Griffin said it best about speaking out of both sides of your mouth. I mean, we there's there's a big big problem that exists right now um, in live entertainment sales. It's just, and I, I don't know how they're I don't know how they're gonna talk their way out of it. I really don't. So, is there anything the court can do to prevent Ticketmaster from doing this to other artists while the case is pending? Then. Oh, there's a lot that the court could do. You know, do I think the court's going to do anything? Probably not. A lot of that is also with the uh, state attorney generals and the federal government. They have a lot of power to enter injunctions and consent decrees against them. But the most they did was enter a toothless consent decree with the merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster, which turned two behemoth bully corporations into one 
beyond behemoth monopoly. That's okay, just, what do you call it? Is there even a word for it? Like a leviathan. <laughs> So, so, you know, Congress could break up the monopoly. They could come in and they could, the consent degree, they could, you know, revoke. The, the Justice Department will most certainly find them, right? I mean, they find them before. It didn't make a difference. They didn't change their practices. But within the 10 years since the merger, they've been fined. Uh, so the Justice Department could come in and do something. The U.S. Congress could come in and do something. And the state could do something. The, you know, with the attorney generals. And that's what we would hope happen right now. The only thing that we've seen currently, Amy Klobuchar is a huge advocate and is just on the back of Ticketmaster right now. So she is like a bulldog at the heels of Ticketmaster and seems relentless. So that certainly is an asset to fans, to live entertainment fans everywhere, because she is clearly not going to give up. Uh, but the only other thing that we really see in play right now is Colorado has a bill uh, pending in their legislature, um, which would change the way ticket sales would happen in that in their state. So Colorado has taken some action. I mean, it is a bit disappointing that more states attorney generals have not, um, you know, have not taken more of a leadership position on this. I know that in Georgia, there have been some communication. I've seen some interviews um, with Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar and some uh, electeds in, in Georgia. So, you know, the hope is, is that they get more active. But, but what it really does, I think, is it motivates me more. Because mm -hmm. if you look at, you look at sort of revolutionary changes in our country, take tobacco or asbestos. You know, it's really taken civil litigation that's forced because in a lot of ways, the last resort for a consumer or anybody that's been victimized is the civil justice system. And so, you know, it's... It, I'm I'm okay with I'm okay with where we are. I, you know, if it takes if it takes civil lit, litigation to really effectuate some change, like it did in tobacco or any other industry, you know, we're up for the fight. But it may be what it takes. It may be it may be us as lawyers that change things if if the if the government's not going to. So, how can Swifties and my podcast listeners help the situation? Well, you know, joining is, is helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, the more the more people, the more voices that we have, the stronger we are as a unit, right? And and it doesn't diminish any individual's you know, voice or cause of action because it's not a class and because everyone is represented individual. Every unique experience is appreciated and important, right? Because we all come from a different place and a different point of view with a different experience. So I would encourage Swifties to join the lawsuit. It doesn't cost anything to join. And what are we teaching? What are we teaching each other if we don't stand up for each other? I mean, a Swifties not doing it just for Taylor Swift or for themselves or for their fellow Swifties, right? I mean, our commitment is to help the indie artist, right? Because if our experience can't change things, then what does an indie artist, what chance do they have? A voice, a message that's important to this country, it's important to somebody, right? A song, mm -hmm. uh, a lyric can be life-changing to any individual at some point in their life, right? And so it, I really, I, and I think most Swifties really see it as, a responsibility mm -hmm. because if, if, if we have the ability to change things because our community is so united and so strong, then it's our responsibility to help an indie artist that doesn't yet have a voice, doesn't yet have any power, um, is, is just a pawn in the system. Right. Um, 
I would encourage other Swifties because we want our we want the system to be better. We want our kids to have opportunities that we had. Because you know, right now we were on a Zoom call yesterday and people don't go to concerts anymore because they can't afford them. Yeah. And and that what about that in this country, the best country in the world, right? With the best legal system in the world. Why can't it be more fair? Because they should be, we all should be able to go to a concert or a live entertainment venue with people we don't know, but we're all so very similar in our love of that event, right? And our shared community, our shared experience, our shared love of whatever it is, right? We come together for that moment in time and sort of unify our voices. And it's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's, 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 a, it's sort of a unifying event for that moment in time, right? And it's all lost. Mm-hmm. It's all lost because people can't afford it. I feel like that's such a big part of young people's lives too. I remember being in high school and going to concerts and they're some of the best memories of my life. But now if that were today and I were a high schooler, there's no way I could afford that with my subway paycheck as a sandwich artist, you know, you can, there's no you way. Can never, you could, and, and lyrics resonate. Lyrics have meaning in our everyday life and ballads and, and notes or a wrestling match, or a monster truck rally, or an athletic event. It brings us all together post-COVID when we're searching, and we're hungry, and we're a little bit sad because we've been isolated and removed from each other. And it is such a mentally healthy experience, Mm -hmm. right? to experience that with your friends or random people that you don't know and sing songs together and make a friend or like Taylor Swift said, make the bracelet, share that moment in time. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's all being lost and it's being lost by an organization that only cares about making money. They don't care to make the experience better for the consumer better for the artist. This doesn't have anything to do with helping an artist, helping a consumer. It has to do with making money. Mm -hmm. I would love to know your thoughts on how Ticketmaster reacted to The Cure in just these past few days, how they refunded a bunch of people who bought tickets. And for anyone who is listening and doesn't know, The Cure recently had a sale for their North American tour where they sold their tickets at face value, no dynamic pricing, And the fees for those tickets ended up being the same or if not more than the actual ticket. There was outcry. And uh, I think about a week later, Ticketmaster ended up refunding them about five to $10 each. I was interviewed by the gentleman that wrote the article uh, Mm -hmm. today from uh, UK. And, you know, he was really, really excited for Robert Smith and and what he had been able to accomplish um, sort of by sheer force of will, right? He is sort of a force of nature on his own and was so, uh, he was just so proud of Robert Smith's ability to do that for his fans. And what what I know is that I know that what he did was not easy. I, I would imagine that he would there there it wasn't without the threat of, of civil litigation. Um, and uh, and they are a big, big, powerful company represented by a big, big, powerful law firm. And so it's it's really wonderful to see what he was able to accomplish and what an act of generosity and an act of love to his fans and, you know, kudos to him. I like, I, I don't even know, right. Griffin, do you have any feelings about what it took to stand up to Ticketmaster? I mean, it's just a lot. I mean, already just on our end, it's, 
it, just trying to get them to do basic disclosures is just like I'd say pulling teeth, but they at least drug you for that. It, it, <laughs> I can only imagine how hard it's gonna, how hard it must have been for everyone who's tried to come before us. Mm-hmm. You imagine being in the room when you're trying to get Ticketmaster on the line and you finally get them on the line and they finally have their attorneys on the other end and they're all in the room together and you've got Robert Smith probably alone or maybe with an attorney and it's the room and it the in the on the other end of the line is a room full of attorneys and CEOs, rich, rich, powerful CEOs. Uh do, do do I think he was told to fuck off more than once, uh, probably, right? Um, I, you know, it would be interesting to know what he, uh, how he managed to, to navigate that. Did he, uh, threaten to cancel the whole tour? You know, was that part of the conversation? Mm -hmm. Did he threaten not to show up on stage that, that all of this, you know, that this would all be planned. Ticketmaster would spend millions of dollars in merchandise and buying merchandise and vendors and the stadiums because they owned so many of the stadiums and so many venues, right? And so many promoters and merchandisers and vendors. And so did, did he, you know, well, you can get all of this and all of this money on it and I'll never show up on stage. You know, what, what um, I would imagine that it was creative, I would imagine that it was uh, powerful and uh, something maybe that Ticketmaster could not. uh, I mean, Ticketmaster had to at least believe something there was something to lose. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they'll never give up a dime if they don't have to. Five whole dollars. That's big for them. Oh, yeah. I mean, kudos to him because nobody has been able. Well, I guess Bruce Springsteen, after a class action and years of litigation, those individuals are going to get their ticket refunded after what, two years, three years? How many years has it been since they actually purchased the ticket? But for him to get accomplished what he did in a matter of days is, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing short of, you know, miraculous. Well, this has been so amazing and enlightening. I do have one last question. That's a bit of an oddball, but I would just, I would love to hear a legal opinion of this. And that is the Taylor AI voice that's been going around on TikTok and people getting Taylor to say these sentences that she didn't say. I don't know, Griffin, do you, what do you know about that? I think that's, I think these deep fakes are, kind of really troubling from a privacy perspective because they can be kind of fun and like a but you think of all the horrible ways people have and will use them it's just the fact that you can essentially propose make fraud with them relatively easy and it is violating someone's image likeness rights mm-hmm. that we all have I, i'm not i think that there's a lot of and i think it's also keeps pushing for the idea of companies having robots replace artists I mean, I did really, I've enjoyed the Disney Mandalorian series, but it's a little troubling having a fake AI Luke Skywalker voiced by a robot instead of Mark Hamill in the show. Yeah. And with Taylor's case, sometimes they're getting her to say things about her and Joe's sexual life. And I just feel like it's very inappropriate as fans. Yeah, It's really gross. And I think there's also, there's also like the, like putting her face on stuff. Like I know that it's, they've had like tried to do that deep. What's it? Deep fake pornography. It, it's, I don't know. I think a lot of this AI stuff is really not being paid attention to attention to by regulators, mm-hmm. much like Ticketmaster. Like a, a lot of Silicon Valley and tech stuff goes very unchecked. And so, you know, when a bunch of big companies can just do whatever they want, they don't really care about, you know, hurting mm-hmm. people. Find, I think what we'll find is that it is a burgeoning area of the law that will need to be litigated because, you know, as technology evolves, we really have to try to, the law is the worst about keeping up with the times. I mean, we're sort of the last resort and we're not very good as lawyers and as a legal community at staying on the front edge of it, front end of it. We're almost sort of like defense. And, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's going to take um, some lawsuits and some litigation to really 
create some rules and protections, right, for artists and for other individuals, um, because it's it's really sort of disgusting. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. right, it's disgusting. And uh, and why Taylor, right? Of all people, like we already know about her history with her Snapchat with Kim, like editing it to sound like Taylor said something different. So I, I just don't know why fans are doing it. So it's very disheartening. I mean, why she seems why it that someone thinks that she is an easy target or, or something like that is is utterly ridiculous. She is so well spoken and so articulate, and so you know, it's just. It there's it's unfair. It's should be illegal. It should be criminal, really, and it should be punishable by the law, right? There should be some ramifications for doing that. And you know what I think it is is I I think that we need to take a moment, and what we need to do is we need to appreciate all that she's done for the industry and for females. So this is, it's just another attempt at demeaning and, you know, trying to emasculate and, you know, I don't know, Griffin, there, there, there's a, there's an element to it that, that's, that's, that's female driven, the fear, our fear of a powerful female and an intel, an intelligent, articulate, powerful female. And uh, the need to somehow reduce what the gifts and the, what she brings to the table. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you? I mean, there's already. I was going to say at the frankly gross obsession about Taylor's personal life, like it just like the media has always had, like and just criticizing every, like imagine a bunch of strangers criticizing how your relationship had gone. Like at some level, it's just like it's none of your business. It's like leave her alone. Yeah, I mean, honestly, leave a lot of women alone in show business. It's really gross at best, and like you know, horrifying at worst. Yeah, and now people are going to criticize her for things she didn't even say. They just right. thought she said it. And why the need to tear down someone that offers so much inspiration to other people and has done so much for other people and continues to give of herself endlessly and, you know, to just tear her down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hopefully that she knows how supportive we are of her and how appreciative that we are of her bringing us together as a community, because without her, our community doesn't exist. And our community is one of kindness, compassion acceptance and that's what we believe and that's what she believes and that's what she's you know that's why we've all you know are drawn together because of shared ideas and values and lifting each other up and in any place that each each other is at any given moment and you know I hope that we just continue to do that because she's really you know the reason that we're all together and that we are together filing this suit. She brought us together. Absolutely. And is there any point of contact you want to share with our listeners or direct them where to go to find out more about this? Well, our website is www.justcallkinder.net. They can always reach out to our office in any way. We're super responsive. So questions, comments, ideas, they can email us, they can call us. Um, and we're all pretty much always available. Great. Well, thank you so much for this interview. This has been so fascinating. Uh, Well, thank you for inviting us. We really appreciate the interest and, you know, what we're trying. And we appreciate your support because being on this podcast is is supporting us in ways that you just can't imagine. So we really appreciate your support. Absolutely. We have to stick together. It's what Taylor would want. It's what she would want. (laughs) Absolutely. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for listening to Good for a Weekend. I'm your co-host, Cressy Cornis. I want to give a huge, 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 huge thank you to both Jennifer and Griffin for taking an hour of their evening to answer all of my questions. If you want to support their cause or learn more, I'll have their website linked in the show notes. Thank you again to Jennifer and Griffin for fighting this fight for the Swifties. And if you're wondering where our other co-host MK is, 
don't worry, she's alive and well. I accidentally double booked myself a stand-up and podcast recording, and the day we rescheduled it to, MK couldn't participate, so it's completely my fault. But speaking of my stand-up, if you ever want to see me perform, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Cressy K, that's Cressy with a K, because I post my upcoming shows on my stories there. Thanks for listening, y'all. And if you have any thoughts on this episode or just want to chat about Taylor, join our Discord or find us on social media, all of which will be linked in our show notes. See y'all next time.